Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for another day you've blessed us with. Thank you. As we are told that summer and harvest and the seasons will continue as long as um, you give us life. Thank you for your faithfulness through this past year again as we are at the end of one year facing another. We know that you will continue, as the song said, same tomorrow as you are today. Bless Lester as he brings what you have given him, that our hearts can be drawn closer to you and that we can join together in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Good morning and welcome to each one of you. It is a blessing that we can gather like this. And as I reflect over the past year, um, I, I am very thankful for you as a church for the privilege of being a part of a body, of this body. Um, you are dear to me. I'm thankful for what you have shared with me and my family in gifts over the last year as well as your prayers and your words of appreciation and encouragement to us. <clears throat> as um, it sounds like many of you are, uh, this today we are especially reflecting on the past year and, and looking ahead at the coming year. Um, a number of you have, have mentioned that, that indicated that you are thinking about that today, and that's where I'm going with the sermon this morning as well. I'm veering away from my study in Galatians for today at least, and with plans of coming back to that. But today I'm going to look at, at something that's especially um, geared towards helping us think about the coming year. And, and what we often make plans, we set goals, and we anticipate things, and maybe look back with some regrets and some disappointments, as well as good memories and accomplishments. I'd like to direct your attention to God's Word to give us some, some direction in how we should think, how we should approach the coming year, how we should set goals and plans. The Word of God is the best place to go to get wisdom, and I think you all would agree with me that as we look at the world and, and what we're facing, we need wisdom. We need a lot of wisdom. All of you have different challenges, different circumstances you're in, things you're facing that you don't know what the coming year holds for you. You need wisdom. I was listening to some news podcasts I like to listen to here over the last week, and they were kind of summing up some of the events of the past year and what the expectations might be for the coming year as far as the economy and where interest rates are going, and um, just um, world events and how they will affect our lives, how they might affect our country and our economy and the, the ongoing wars and the um, thousands of people that are, are being displaced and are moving and all those kinds of things. And, and it just reminded me that there's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of despair. But there's also um, there's a need for a lot of wisdom to know how to navigate the things that we are facing. I'd like to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning for a sermon. This is not a book that 
I have really spent a lot of time studying. It, it seems like in general we don't spend a lot of time in this book, and I think sometimes may even kind of lay it aside because it, it's a bit discouraging. Um, I think it's important that, that we know how to interpret what this book is saying because um, indeed you, you can get discouraged as you read what um, Solomon here is writing. And so I, I want to give a little bit of a summary of this book and address a few things that Solomon brings out here. And then I want to look specifically at um, the, the end of this book and some verses there for some encouragement in how we can find joy and, and purpose in life in the coming year. One of the main words that stands out to us in this book is the word vanity. And it means emptiness, um, unsatisfied, something that's short-lived, that doesn't last, uh, maybe something that disappoints. <clears throat> he uses that word a lot, if, if uh, you probably are aware of that. We kind of connect that word with the book of Ecclesiastes. In, uh, before we read in Ecclesiastes here, I'd just like to, to turn to a couple verses in Romans. And as we think about the word vanity... I think this will help us to better understand what Solomon is talking about, and maybe it gives us a little bit of a New Testament view of this vanity. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, I'll read. Paul here is saying, um, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, and I think in the old King James it uses the word vanity there for futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So he's saying here that there is that the creation has been subjected to vanity. Um, not by its own choice, but by God. God has, uh, I think it's referring to the curse that sin brought upon this earth. But because of him who subjected it, but he did it in hope. Um, hopefully that helps you to get a little bit better of a context of this word vanity as we see it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, there is um, a lot that we look at in this life that we can say it's, it's vanity, it's, it's a disappointment, it's a failure, it doesn't make sense. But it is because we live with sin. And it is a curse that God has brought upon the earth, but he also brought hope. <clears throat> a key question that Solomon explores in the book of Ecclesiastes is what prophet has a man in his labor? I think he asked this question three times. What profit is there in, in all that, that we are doing in this life? And as we know, that, uh, as we know Solomon's life and some of his accomplishments, he was a very, very wise man. God uh, blessed him with wisdom. I think it would indicate, um, not sure anymore where this is, but I think it was David who talked about his son Solomon as being a wise man. So it would indicate that, that he was a very intelligent um, boy, um, young man. And then there came a time when God 
um, gave him even more wisdom, wis more wisdom than anyone else in the earth. And he was also a very wealthy man. He did a lot of things in his life. He had a lot of power, a lot of influence. Um, he talks in chapter 2 or 3 of Ecclesiastes here about how he, he built houses and gardens and vineyards and accumulated wealth and had servants and um, had um, the ability to, to share his wisdom and his wealth with other influential people throughout the world. And so there was a lot of things that he had accomplished. But here, as he wrote Ecclesiastes, it was probably later on in his life, towards the end of his life. He was now an old man, and he was reflecting back on some of this, and he says it was vanity. There was, in his, in his quest to accomplish things and to, to know everything, he came up short. He felt that it was empty. And so he is sharing this with us and with people coming after him. In particular, um, in the passage we're going to look at, he talks, he addresses the young men. And he's talking to those who, who were still in the prime of their life and him being an older man and saying, you know, this is what I have learned from life. He does often look at life from a purely materialistic view in this book. But then also interjects a number of times, and especially here at the end, he does bring God into that picture and brings out how that, you know, it, it seems like vanity, but, but there is a God and there is hope because of God. So he concludes, I feel like he concludes the book with a little different perspective than what we might gather in reading other portions of it. There's also, we notice, this tension between um, Solomon's inability to understand God. And he was, he was a philosopher. He was very intelligent. And he tried to understand everything. And he realized he couldn't. So there's this tension between his inability to understand God and also realizing the necessity of trusting in God, the brevity of life, the futility of, of what just this world has for us. So his inability to understand God completely and his, the necessity of trusting and fearing God is a, a tension that we see here in Solomon's life and we can probably identify with as well. Man longs to but cannot fully understand the ways of God because he is not God. Yet the faithful, the faithful man does not despair but clings to God even when he cannot see what God is doing. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and I'm going to read verse 9 through um, the end of chapter 12. <clears throat> Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, 
and those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fills, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I want to look at this portion of Scripture to give us some joy and some purpose in life. First of all, he's addressing this to the young men. And let's define a little bit who that might include or who exactly he is talking to. He goes on to describe the time that comes in life when, when you're no longer young, when you're old. And he uses a lot of interesting word pictures there to describe an older person, probably where he was finding himself at in life. So I think he's talking to all of us who are not yet at that stage, completely or maybe you could say to all of us all of us who still have some life left that we can serve God with uh, just pointing out a few of of the word pictures he uses there so you know what I mean he talks about the keepers of the house trembling and and a lot of people would interpret that as probably referring to the hands trembling older people um, having more trouble with that the strong men bowing down, you know, strength, strength is gone, your, your hands, your feet are not as strong as they were. Um, those that look through the windows grow dim, You're, you lose your eyesight, your vision. And it talks about um, the daughters of music are brought low, talking about losing your hearing. So those are some of the pictures he's using. Um, Describing, I think, where he finds himself at in life and now talking to those who are coming along after him. You young people, you young men, you ones that still have energy and strength and life left. And it's, in a sense, a warning not to repeat the mistakes that he had made. It doesn't get into a, a lot of that, but, but we know his story. Um, he was not always a godly man. Not all of his pursuits were um, pleasing to God. 
And he regretted some of that, I believe, as he looked back and described that as vanity. Basically, he's making us aware that that we have a limited time. uh, There's coming a time when we we will give an account to God for what we have done. And we have a limited time to, to do what we can do for the Lord, to live our lives for him. Also, he says, rejoice, O young man. He begins with that instruction. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. This is a command in Scripture that we rejoice, that we are joyful. And it is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of those who live for Christ that will come out of our lives if we are living faithfully for him. We will have joy. This rejoicing commanded in Scripture is what makes Christ attractive to the unbeliever, for those who do not know him, who those who are, to those who are not living in victory. The, the joy that radiates out of believers makes Christ attractive to those who do not know him. This is a joy that is not vanity, but a joy that is found in Christ. And he says here to us, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Now, just looking at that phrase would seem to give us the freedom to kind of live as we please and and do what we want to and do what feels good. Go after what looks good. But he goes on. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment, giving us that warning. He's saying we should pursue the pleasures that God has given. As he goes on, he he recognizes God as the creator and the one who has given us good things to enjoy. His advice is that that we would enjoy the good things God has given for us. By knowing him as a creator, accepting his good gifts, uh, by putting away evil and sorrow, he says in verse 10. Evil and sorrow steal joy from us. Though sin might seem attractive at the first look, But it will eventually steal our joy from us. We have to put that away and pursue the pleasures that God has given us. He also talks about an honor and a respect and a love for God that finds joy in keeping his commandments. At the very end of this book, where he says, where he sums up everything, the conclusion of the whole matter is that we are to fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. We're to have that honor and respect and fear for God and a love for him that actually finds joy in following him and in doing his commandments. But as he advises us to seek joy and enjoy the good things in life, he warns us that there is a judgment day coming as well. And this is where I would like to spend a good bit of our time this morning is, is talking about the Judgment Day. As we, we look into another year, uh, we don't know if 2024 will be the year of the Lord's return. We don't know 
if this will be when he brings judgment on the earth. And Solomon warns us twice in this passage about that coming judgment. He says, well, you can walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all this, God will bring you into judgment. And then in verse 14, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Is the fact that there is a coming judgment, is, is that anything to rejoice about? Is that something to find hope in? Is that give us some purpose and direction in life? I think it should. I'm going to be turning to a number of different scriptures here. Um, I found it very just interesting to do this study on, on what the scriptures all tell us about judgment. The challenge for us is, as we make plans, and we have to make some plans for the future, though we can't depend on that too much, maybe, um, as we anticipate the future, and I, and I think we should, and as we seek to enjoy what this world um, gives us to enjoy, we need to keep in mind that there is a judgment day coming. There is a certainty of judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is talks of that certainty that we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. Not just the sinner, but all of us. Just as Solomon says here, know that. God will bring you into judgment. Now, there is multiple forms of judgment. We sometimes maybe condense this down or simplify this too much where we picture, you know, someday um, all of a sudden there's going to be the end of this earth and there's going to be a judgment and there's going to be a separation there where the believers and unbelievers are separated into their eternal destiny. But I think it's more complicated, if I can use that word. It's not quite that simple. For example, in the book of Revelations, I'm not going to dive deep into that, but um, it talks of the seven bowls of judgment in, in the, the middle of Revelations or somewhere, maybe 15 through 17 or somewhere around there. The seven bowls of judgment, and it describes um, these angels with these bowls, and, and they bring them, and there's certain kind of judgment that's poured out on the earth. It also talks about the judgment of the great harlot Babylon, a specific judgment for the great harlot Babylon. It talks about Christ on a white horse bringing judgment to the beast, to the false prophet, and to those who have received the mark of the beast. It talks about the judgment for the devil when he is cast into the lake of fire forever. And it talks about what we sometimes refer to as the great white throne judgment, where it says that God will be sitting on a great white throne and people will be judged out of books. And one of those books is the book of life. So there's, that describes to us um, multiple forms of judgment that will eventually come to all people. Let's look first of all at a judgment that will bring us joy. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 
Is, is there, have you ever pictured a coming judgment as a time of joy? 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Um, I was going to stop in verse 9 there, but joy, um, where do, how do we see joy in judgment? He says here, he gives several examples of God bringing judgment on the angels who sinned when he cast them down to hell, uh, we, and then how that he saved Noah. He brought judgment on the earth in the time of Noah with a flood that destroyed all, but he saved Noah out of that. And then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and how he saved Lot out of that destruction. We know that they were burned up with fire, but Lot was delivered. It says that he was um, tormented by all the lawlessness and the sin that he saw around him. And then, according to those examples... The Lord also knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So what it's telling us here is that there is a judgment that we will be delivered from if we are followers of Christ. There is a judgment that we will be delivered from, that we will be spared. A judgment of destruction. It's a judgment that we will be saved from, and I believe there can be joy in this because the saints will be avenged. And I'd like to turn to Revelations 18 and uh, verse 20, and notice what it says here. This is describing some of those judgments that I refer to in the, that are described throughout the book of Revelations here. In 18 verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Describing the judgment of Babylon and the holy apostles and prophets can rejoice because they are being avenged. And then verse um, 19 verse 7 as well. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Okay, I was going to read 1 through 7, I believe, in chapter 19. After these things, a loud voice of great multitudes in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, 
because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Here we see a rejoicing again because of a judgment that the saints are spared from, but they also are avenged. What does that mean? <clears throat> Somewhere in scripture it says that, that God, God says that vengeance is his and he will repay. And that is a promise that we have and a hope that we have. And that is um, what our life of, of non-resistance is based upon, of not fighting back, of not, re, not um, seeking to destroy um, evil in a physical sense. Because there is a day of vengeance coming. There's a day of judgment coming when the ungodly will be destroyed and the godly will be avenged. The suffering, the, the torment that they have experienced or that we experience on this earth. Um, he talks about the blood of the saints um, being avenged. What the ungodly have done will be avenged and there will be a sense of joy for us in that judgment. You probably know what it feels like if somebody mistreats you, if somebody sneaks into your house and steals valuables from you and, and there's this feeling in, in you that you want to be avenged, you want to make things, you want to make it even, you want to get them back, you want them to, to get in trouble for what they have done to you. That's that avengement that, that we are not, that God promises that he will avenge us. It's not our responsibility to do that. It's not our job. But there will be a judgment day when we will be avenged. There's also a judgment of our works. As Solomon talks about here in the end of chapter 12, God will bring every work into judgment. And also 1 Corinthians Three, and I see this as a different form of judgment than what we've been looking at in the judgment where the saints will be avenged, where evil will be um, done away with, where, where eventually comes to the place where the devil himself is thrown into the lake of fire and torment forever. This is a different kind of judgment, the judgment of our works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 through 15, it says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each man's work of what sort is it, it is. If anyone's work which he has done is has if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, this is talking about 
people who are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it's indicating that there's different materials that we might use in building on that. But there's coming a judgment day, a day when fire will determine which one of those works are of value and which ones are not. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. I don't think it's saying that we will pass through fire or through hell, but it's talking about a judgment of fire that will get rid of any works, will will completely, um, yeah, do away with any of those works that were not of value. This is a judgment of works that I believe we will be rewarded according to our works. That's difficult for me to understand or to explain, but numerous times in Scripture, it talks about the rewards and the varying levels of rewards that will be given to the saints. Not that there will be disappointment that we live in with heaven, in heaven, but yet there will be works that will be rewarded and there will be works that will be burned up because they were not, uh, we were not using the right material to build on that foundation. This judgment should cause us to live soberly, righteously, and godly, and to look forward to Christ's appearing. This is brought out in, um, in Titus. Chapter 2, it talks about living soberly, righteously, and godly. And, and I appreciate the, the, the description of what it means to be sober that Ray talked about this morning in the devotional. To be alert. Uh, this, this judgment of works is what should cause us as believers to, to be alert, to be aware, to be attentive to what we are doing, what we are using to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ how we are living our lives. These works um, that we use to build should cause us to look forward to the appearing of Christ, to anticipate that with joy, knowing that there will be a reward. So yes, there is joy that can be found in anticipating a judgment. Solomon refers to both of these judgments in Ecclesiastes where he says, know that for all these, um, for all these, God will bring you into judgment for the works that we do. God will bring us into judgment. I don't know how that makes you feel if as you plan and, and anticipate and look forward to the coming year, does judgment cross your mind? How often do you think of the possibility of a final judgment? The possibility of your opportunity to, to work for God coming to an end, your life ending, and eventually the judgment of your works. But this is something that we should think about and that we should not be afraid of. If we have received Christ as our Savior, if we know Him and we put our faith and trust in Him, He promises he does deliver us from the judgment that sends us to eternal destruction. We are safe and secure and will be delivered from that. And yet there is a judgment of our works that should cause us to live soberly and righteously. In 1 John, and we've been spending a good bit of time in there in in our Sunday school, 
But it says um, that it was written so that our joy may be full. Remember reading over that at the beginning of, of 1 John there? He was writing to them so that their joy would be full. How was he um, encouraging them to have joy? And I wasn't in our class last Sunday, so I'm not sure what, what you discussed in that. But in the end of chapter 2 there, in verse 28, he says, Now little children abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John wanted us to have joy as we anticipate the coming of Christ. He talked to us about abiding in Christ because that is how we have joy and that is how we can confront or approach the judgment day with confidence and joy as we abide in Christ. So my challenge to you is what is your joy based upon as you look forward to the coming year? What is your joy based upon? Is it the things that Solomon talked about, the, the riches he accumulated, and all those things they said, really, it's, it's vanity. I, I don't understand it. It's, it, does, it seems like life just goes in a cycle. You know, he talks about people accumulating things and then, then the people who come after them um, not valuing those things and the temporary, um, the, the frailty of life and how it just... It comes to an end, it goes on, and, and man is soon forgotten. What are you basing your joy on? Is it those things? Or are you finding joy in Christ, in knowing Christ? And as he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. May that give us direction and purpose and joy in the coming year as we think about Christ, the judgment, and everything we do we will be brought before him at one time, and then we will be rewarded. My prayer is that your joy is based on that, and you find purpose in living life, um, anticipating that judgment. Let's bow our heads for prayer. God, we thank you that at the close of this calendar year, we can place our trust in you, we don't know what the future holds, and there's many unknowns. We want to follow you, walk with you, abide in you, and look to you and to your word for wisdom, to know how to navigate life, how to understand life, and to be able to find joy and purpose in life. Pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, to us as a church, as we study your word, as we worship together, and as we exhort one another, that we would draw closer to you. And in the coming year could be a time of spiritual growth for us. And as we think about the end of life and the coming judgment, that we would not approach it in fear, but with joy that you can give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken, do you have a closing song for us? Yeah.